Our scripture reading this afternoon is from 1 Peter 2. The passage can be found on page 10 of the bulletin and will also be projected above. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Lauren. I appreciate it. All right, kids, I, uh, I mentioned your Trinity Kids Bulletin uh, earlier that was in that bag. You can grab that now, and there's a spot on there to jot down three things to listen for. Uh, these are the things I want you to listen specifically for. The first is wheel unfortunate. Secondly, kids, you already knew that one. That's good. That was an acknowledgement. That's good. Uh, wax tablet is the second. And then third is uh, the green mile. So wheel unfortunate, wax tablet, and green mile. So let me, uh, let me pray for us. Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Lord, we are uh, so grateful for the gift of your word. We thank you that it is absolutely true and that you've given it to us because you love us so much. And so we pray that your spirit would attend to your word now, that would work with your word in our hearts such that you would accomplish what you desire in us. And we pray this all for your glory and for our good. Amen. Some of the, the most popular YouTubers now, and actually I think ever, um, are the guys from Dude Perfect. Um, many of you will know that name. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. That's okay too. Uh, it is a group of guys who became friends while they were at A&M, and they basically started filming themselves doing these trick shots. And the one that really put them on the map is that it was, it was, they were basketball trick shots. There was one that, uh, that he did, that one of the guys did from the third deck of Kyle Field and made it into the basket down on on the field. And so the videos took off from there. They've been crazy successful. Um, millions of views right when their videos uh, come out. Um, a few years ago, though, they started doing a little, uh, some stuff a little bit differently, and they started a show called Overtime. And so there are a lot of these funny little segments on there. My personal favorite, though, is one that's called Wheel Unfortunate, okay? So a play on Wheel of Fortune, and the way it works is that you draw names out of the hat and then there, there's one who loses, the loser that, that gets drawn out of the hat, has to spin the wheel. And on the wheel are all these hilarious and terrible things, like uh, spray tan level 10. Like you gotta go get this level 10 spray tan. Uh, sleep in a bed of sand. Uh, get braces, like you have to go get braces put on by an orthodontist. Uh, shave your eyebrows. Uh, fly to Wisconsin for no reason. 
um, buy an Android phone. <laughs> and this is my favorite, own a cat. <laughs> And so, um, so one of the funny things about this is that all of those, the Android phone one hasn't happened. The other ones have actually happened. Um, one of the funny things about this is that the, the twins on the show, uh, Kobe and Corey Cotton, um, have ended up spinning the wheel way more than any of the other guys have. They, they've, uh, they've spun it 18 times total. And so you could say um, they have faced a disproportionate amount of suffering, right? Um, way more than anybody else on the show. And it's hilarious for everybody else, but you can see from their perspective how they look at this and go, this is not fair. And that, that, and that it's not as though that they've done anything to deserve it. It's just not fair that they ha have faced this. And so now I mention that because that's some of how it can feel when suffering hits your life, that it's not fair. And I'm not talking here about the kind of suffering that, that, uh, that we bring upon ourselves because some of the, uh, the suffering we face is because of things that we've done. So you, you don't study for an exam. You fail the exam and it kills your grade in the class and maybe it even hurts your GPA and there are repercussions down the road because of that. Or you say something that is really hurtful to your spouse, really hurtful. And it ends up changing the dynamic of your marriage for years to come. See, that, that kind of suffering and that kind of hardship is the kind of suffering that we bring on ourselves. But here's the thing, though. There is a whole lot of suffering that we endure that is not at all due to anything that we've done. It's the kind of suffering of, of sickness and death. The, 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 the suffering of living in a fallen and a broken world. And sometimes it's suffering that comes at the hands or from the hands of other people, even while you're doing something good. It's unjust suffering. And I think it's, it's that kind of suffering that, that is the hardest of all to endure. And it's that kind of unjust suffering that Peter's talking about in this passage. And so he, he mentions specific situations where his audience are, are trying to follow Jesus and to live faithfully and do good, and yet there are people who are actively trying to harm them. And it's not fair. It's the furthest thing from fair. And so in this passage, the, the most vivid example of that that he gives is the suffering of a household servant. And it's actually really important for a number of reasons that, that, that he mentions and uses the example of a household servant. We're going to talk some about them. But one of them is that he's making a bigger point here about how to face, face unjust suffering in a world that is not your home. Of what it looks like to follow Jesus while you are in exile among people who don't share your faith in Jesus and, and who in some cases are actually hostile to that faith. And so the question that, that Peter's trying to answer is this, how are we supposed to respond in the face of suffering? Especially when that suffering is unjust and it's undeserved. How do you respond, for example, to the cruelty of a boss or a supervisor or a coworker? What do you do when, when somebody says awful things to you or when somebody says awful things about you and you've done nothing to deserve it? So this is one of uh, multiple places in, in Peter's letters, uh, in Peter's letter where, where he talks about suffering. We're going to have at least two other sermons that deal specifically with some other aspects of suffering. Here's what I want us to see this week, though, from this passage. We live faithfully in the world by following Jesus in suffering for doing good. By following Jesus in suffering 
for doing good. So in order to do that, I, I want us to see three things from this passage. Here's the first. Jesus calls you to suffer for doing good. He calls you to suffer for doing good. That's the basic call of the passage, verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. You skip down to verse 21. He says, for to this, that is suffering, you have been called. So first, a few words about slavery here. We need to address that from the start. So the word servant in verse 18 is actually the word for a household servant. And uh, it's important to point that out here because first century Greco-Roman household servants and household slavery was very different from North American race-based chattel slavery in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. Some of those differences, for example, are this. A household servant in the Greco-Roman world would actually be paid for their work. And there were ways in which a servant could, could purchase their own freedom. It was, it was also a way that somebody could become a Roman citizen. And so there were a number of free people who would give themselves to become a, a household servant in order to then uh, obtain Roman citizenship. Uh, Greco-Roman uh, servants also did a much more than just manual labor. There were actually household servants who were doctors, they were teachers, there were some who were writers, even some who were accountants. And so uh, what ended up happening in many cases is that some would stay on and work as free people even after they had purchased their freedom because it was actually a, 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 a decent situation to be in. So here's the point. The point is not to say that, that first century slavery was fine. Uh, it's not to say that there weren't some very dehumanizing aspects to it because there were. But it is to say, though, that Peter's words here are not some kind of biblical justification for the race-based slavery that we're familiar with in American history. The, the Bible could not be clearer about being opposed to that kind of slavery. It runs completely contrary to the gospel. And so we need to say that from the front end, that we're talking about a different situation here. The point here that Peter's making is that this kind of slavery was so common in the first century that Peter has to tell them what it looks like to live in these circumstances. There are some estimates that, that a third of the people living in Greece and in Rome at this time were servants. And so what, what Peter's trying to do here is to tell them what it looks like to live out the implications of this new birth into the living hope of the resurrection of Jesus that they now have experienced. How does our faith impact these most immediate relationships that we have? And what Peter does is in a lot of ways, he actually undercuts or almost subverts the, the, the common expectations and a lot of the assumptions that, that people had of household servants and we'll see next week, uh, and women as well in these passages. And the way that he does that is that he frames both this passage and the one at the beginning of, of chapter three in the form of what's called a household code. Probably doesn't mean much to us, but it, this was a huge deal in the Greco-Roman world because the household code was this sort of um, unspoken way, unspoken or unwritten ex expectation for the way in which life was supposed to work in the household. And that household included these servants. It was sort of the, it, it was the basic unit of all of society. And so Peter has got to address, it's got to tell his audience how their new faith in Christ is gonna shape these relationships within the household. And if you go back to verse 12 of chapter two, he's, he's really working out this question of how they can keep their conduct among the Gentiles honorable. 
how they can show forth these good deeds in all of the circumstances of their life. So here's the situation. There's a servant who's suffering at the hands of an unjust master. And so Peter is very clear here that the servant has not done anything wrong. He actually says the servant has done good here. That's his point in verse 20. He's suffering unjustly. And here's the thing. It may be that this servant is suffering because he's a Christian. In other words, it could be that he's facing persecution because he is a believer. That's a possibility. But it's not just that. It, also, it could also be that the master is just cruel and unjust. In other words, the motive of the unjust master is not the point. And this is important for us because this really applies to us. The focus here is on how a Christian should respond to any unjust suffering. And so what does Peter say? Verse 19. This is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. And so here's the key. It's that phrase, being mindful of God. When you bear up under injustice and you do that mindful of God, you do that from a motive of honoring God, you actually bear witness to Jesus. So how does that work? Well, Peter says in both verse 19, and you see this in verse 20 as well, that this is a gracious thing. So what does he mean by that? Well, it means on the one hand that, that, that this is something that, that's commendable in the eyes of God. But it, it also could literally be translated, this is grace. This is grace. And so part of what, what, what's being said here is that the only way it's possible to endure this kind of unjust suffering is by the grace of God. And when you see that, you can say, this is grace. When that happens, it points to the only one who can make that kind of suffering possible, which is Jesus himself. And so um, maybe one of the, the most powerful examples of this is the civil rights movement. And again, the civil rights uh, movement was largely led uh, by the black church. And so if you think back to, to uh, some of the core of what was happening there, to respond to that kind of racial injustice of Jim Crow and of segregation and to do so in a nonviolent way bore witness to the Savior who did the exact same thing. And so, so here's what this might mean practically. It may be that you work for somebody who is cruel, who's really cruel, who treats you unfairly and uh, who, who has done things to you or said things about you or blamed you for things and you're actually completely innocent of those things. And yet there's really not a way out of your situation that you find yourself in. It could be that, that you've endured real sorrows in being betrayed by a friend and they're completely false. And so what Peter's saying here is that in those opportunities, you actually have the opportunity to bear witness to Jesus in the way that you respond. To actually respond in a way that would otherwise be impossible without his grace at work in you. And in fact, that's what he's calling you to. Here's the thing about this though. That is often the last thing that we want to do. What we want to do in that situation is to respond in kind, is to take that person down, to retaliate. And there's a, this impulse within us that makes us want to do that. So uh, Brian Habig, a uh, pastor, makes the point that there are some things in Scripture that are hard because they're, they're just difficult to interpret. But then there are other things in Scripture that are hard, not because they're unclear, but because they are super clear. 
And it's that we don't like what's being said. That's kind of what this passage feels like in a way. So why would Peter call us to do this? Well, he answers that in verse 21. The answer is because this is exactly what Jesus did. So secondly, Jesus gives you the the example of suffering while doing good. He gives you the example of suffering while doing good. Verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And so what, what Peter does here is he gives these two really helpful images. One is the word that he uses for the word example. And so uh, it's literally the word that, that's used for, for a wax tablet uh, that, that a student would use to learn how to write, to le- write the letters in the alphabet. And so the way this, is, this would work is that a, a student w- would trace over the letters that your teacher had written. So you're tracing over those. That is your example that you're following. The second image is this following, is the one of following in his steps. So kids, um, uh, think about this. Uh, have you ever been to the beach and maybe there's been uh, a family member, somebody that's walking right in front of you and you can see their footprints in front of you and so you try to walk in them. Or maybe you've tried to do that with snow. Probably not around here, but maybe sometime you've done that in another part of the country. Peter is saying, that's what you are to do with Jesus. He's saying that the call to follow Jesus is a call to follow him into suffering. And this is, of course, exactly what Jesus has called us to do as well. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And here's the important thing about this as well. Jesus is not just one example among many. The word that's used here is much stronger than that. It's more to say that Jesus is the paradigm. That he's shown us what it looks like to suffer. So how did he respond in the face of unjust suffering? Well, to answer that, what Peter does is he appeals back to the, the servant song in Isaiah 53. And so this is a passage that we, we typically read around Good Friday. And the reason for that is that it's this extended meditation on, on the suffering of God's servant. It's part of these servant songs in Isaiah. And I mentioned this earlier, but, but this place in the New Testament, in 1 Peter 2, is the most direct application of Isaiah 53 to the work of Jesus. So here's what Peter says, verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. And here's what you've got to remember as you read those words. Jesus did every bit of this as a perfectly innocent man. There was not one bit of that suffering that he deserved. That's the example. And so the question is, how in the world was he able to do that? How could he be mocked? How could he be spit upon? How could he be beaten and yet never retaliate? Verse 23, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What he did in those moments was cling to the truth that the God of the Bible is a God of justice. See, Jesus didn't avenge himself because he knew that his father would one day make all things right in the end. He knew that no injustice 
that no wrong would ultimately go unrecognized or unseen and even unpunished by God. And so what did this look like? Uh, how practically did Jesus do this? Well, here's how he did it. Jesus, as Isaiah 53 said, he remained silent in the face of his persecutors. But he did not remain silent before God. What he did instead is cry out to God in the midst of his suffering. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before his crucifixion, he prayed and pleaded and cried out to God for this cup to pass. On the cross, as he hung dying and suffering, he prayed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he, he cries out for deliverance, for God to make it stop. And most of the time what he did is he used the Psalms to do that. But he refused to respond to meet this violence with more violence. And instead, he entrusted himself to the goodness and the justice of God, his Father. What does that mean for us? What does it look like then to follow in Christ's footsteps as we suffer? Well, it looks like crying out to God to deliver you from it. It looks like praying and pleading and crying and begging him to do that. Dan McCartney says the Psalms were Jesus's resource in time of suffering. If we are gonna suffer in Christ, we ought to respond the way he did, by the Psalms. Here's the hard thing. What if God doesn't answer that prayer? What if I pray and I plead and I cry and I beg and nothing changes? Thirdly, what Jesus does is he enables you by his grace to suffer while doing good. He enables you by his grace to suffer while doing good. How does he do that? Peter mentions three ways. First, he enables you to suffer by identifying with you in your suffering. So here's the thing. God might not immediately answer that prayer for deliverance in the way that you want him to. But, but here's what he does say to you. Here's what you can be absolutely confident that he is always saying to you. He is saying, I know what you are feeling. I know what it is to be wrongly accused. I know what it is to endure unspeakable injustice and pain. I think this to, to me um, is one of the most remarkable and amazing and in some ways unbelievable things about who the God of the Bible really is. It's that he is one who knows what it is like to suffer from the inside. He knows it firsthand. So God the Father knows what it feels like to lose a child. He knows what it's like to have wayward children. God the Son knows what it feels like to endure sickness, to feel helpless and weak and frail. He knows the sorrow of what it feels like to lose a friend. He knows the pain of betrayal and infidelity. And he knows, of course, what death itself feels like. 
Osganis says, Christianity is the only religion whose God bears the scars of evil. What Isaiah 53 says about Jesus is that he has borne your griefs and carried your sorrows. And so when you cry out to him, you can be absolutely certain that you are praying to one who gets it. And that is so much of what we long for and want in our grief and our suffering and our sorrow. And so one of the reasons that, that grief and support groups can be so helpful is because you know you're talking with a group of people who, who have been there, who knows what, what it feels like, the, 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 the way that you're feeling in that moment. And what you need to know is that that is true of Jesus himself. He enables you to suffer. He identifies, you with, he identifies with you in your suffering. Here's the thing, though. He doesn't just share in your pain and in your suffering. He's actually done something about it. And so secondly, he enables you to suffer by suffering for you. By suffering for you. Peter says in verse 21, you've been called to suffer because Christ has suffered for you. In verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Jesus Christ suffered on your behalf, in your place, for your sins. And so while Peter is setting him up here as this example, this paradigm for us to follow in our suffering, there is a sense in which there is something completely unique and unrepeatable and once for all about his suffering for you. And so theologians call this a substitutionary atonement. And what that means is that Christ died as a substitute for the sins of his people. That he bore, as, as Peter says, in his body, as he hung on the cross, the wrath of God due for the sins of his people. And so here's what that means. It means that if you have put your faith in Jesus, then you are fully, finally, and completely forgiven. And that's really important to know when you are in the midst of suffering. Why? Because there's a temptation when you are facing suffering to have something in the back of your mind that thinks, God right now must be punishing me for my sin. That's why I'm enduring this. And what Peter says right here is that that is impossible. Because the punishment due for your sin has already been exhausted on Jesus you can suffer because Jesus has already suffered for you. Thirdly, he enables you to suffer by promising to heal you by his wounds. I think this is one of the most beautiful statements of what Jesus has done. Verse 24, by his wounds, you have been healed. And so Peter's quoting Isaiah 53 directly, and he is saying that Jesus didn't just suffer to deal with the guilt of your sin. He did that, and that is such good news. But there is also a sense in which Jesus takes your pain and your suffering for you and from you. So let me, uh, let me close with this. It's a movie that came out uh, in the late 90s, The Green Mile, uh, another one that was based on a book by, by Stephen King. And at the, the, one of the main characters of this book was a prisoner. His name was John Coffey. He had been imprisoned wrongly for a crime he didn't commit, and he's on death row what you find out in the midst of this movie is that he has this gift 
that in some ways is a curse to him as well, but it's this gift of when he touches somebody who who has suffered in some extreme way, who's experienced awful trauma, he can see that suffering and that trauma. And as he touches them, he takes that suffering and that pain into himself. And the person that he's touched is healed because of it. And, and, and it taxes him horribly every time he does that. Once he takes this pain from somebody, he has to go to sleep and lie down. Well, eventually what he does is he, he takes this pain, this something that's happened to this girl, and it's so severe and so bad and so evil that he can no longer live, that it takes his life. There is a sense in which that is what Jesus has done for you that he has taken your pain, your suffering, and your sin into himself, into his body on the tree. And he dies in order to heal you. And there are ways in which you can experience that healing right now. That's not something that's exclusively future. But there are plenty of ways ways in which you are not healed yet. And maybe those are the ways that you feel most profoundly. But here's the deal. There is a day coming when that healing will be complete. When you will be fully and finally free of your suffering. When it will come to an end definitively. And that day is guaranteed because Jesus' suffering and death, him bearing these sins in his body on the tree was not the end of his story. Because three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. And what that means is that suffering and death doesn't win in the end. That suffering and death don't get the final word. Jesus' resurrection does. And so here's what this means. It means that the only place that you can find the healing that you long for and that your heart aches for is in Jesus himself. It's only when you know and you believe that your Savior has borne your sins in his body on the tree that you can actually bear up under unjust suffering. It would be impossible otherwise. That's what the suffering servant offers to you. And so it may be that you're here and you have never, ever trusted Jesus and that you're in such a horrible spot right now and it feels completely helpless and hopeless, I want you to know that you can actually trust him right now. That you can put your faith in him right now and you can receive this healing and this rescue from him. He's the one who offers himself to you right now. Will you receive him? Pray for us. Father, we're so grateful that you are a God of such abundant mercy and kindness. Lord, you have, uh, you have provided a way for us to be healed. You've provided a way for us to be rescued and saved from our own sin, even as we were those who ran from you, and rebelled against you, and brought so much on ourselves that we justly deserved. And yet you and your love sent your son to die for us, to bear in his body our sins on the tree. So Father, we thank you for him. We thank you for his suffering. 
And we pray, Lord, that because we have tasted of this life and salvation in him, that we would be those who follow in his footsteps and suffer in a way that bears witness to him ultimately. And we pray this ultimately for his glory and also for our good. Amen.